I also would like to announce that I'd be uh, in the break this afternoon, mid-afternoon. I'd be happy to sign books. At the end of the afternoon, I have to scoot out of here very fast to go to a birthday party. <laughs> good reason. Isn't that a good reason? Okay. So, my friends, we are coming around the spiral. Uh, we started in the East this morning with... Yeah. And being grounded in gratitude, it's our birthright to be alive, then we move into honoring our pain for the world. That part of it is absolutely essential. It's like the hinge of the work that reconnects. We have to just know in our bodies that it's uh, that we won't be broken by uh, the uh, fear or grief that we carry for the world, that this is the most natural thing in the world. Uh, It's like we are a living cell inside the living body of Earth. And if that larger body is being traumatized, it is only healthy and right for us to feel that too. Otherwise, we're disconnected. So you want to reconnect if you want to make a difference in this world. And that is what your deepest desire is. Isn't that so? Yes. So, uh, having been then honoring, and we could, you know, you could stay there all week. You realize that. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, we have all sorts of, and you, we can cry and thump and scream and beat our chest, and all kinds of things. But the main thing in this honoring our pain for the world is to simply not be afraid of it. And you can never fully cathart it. You can, can't purge it out or you know, by all kinds of cathartic processes because then the very next minute there's something else that you're seeing, beholding, experiencing in our world. So you're never finished with the pain for the world. You're going to feel more tomorrow. (laughs) But you won't be afraid of it. And you'll learn how to see what it really is. How it really is the boundless heart of the Bodhisattva. How it really uh, is a gift of this extended awareness. And pretty soon you see that uh, this, whether you're experiencing it as uh, sorrow or as dread or as outrage, that's a big one for me. <laughs> Anger, confusion, doubt, etc., etc., that these are all of them, they are not reducible to the self-interest of the little ego. They uh, are grounded in your connectedness with the world. So think of it as a two-sided coin that your pain for the world, whether, whatever flavor it's coming in for you, despair or rage or sorrow, is simply one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is your love for the world. And if you try to 
anesthetize yourself against one, the other gets numbed out too. Isn't that so? Yeah. Yeah. Just don't try to uh, carry it all by yourself. What's because uh, what's going on now uh, is I like the phrase of a great teacher of mine, David Corton, great economist. He calls it the the great unraveling. It's the unraveling under the pressure of the industrial growth society, which is constructed, construed, it has to grow by, that means it has to keep extracting resources out of the body of earth, turning them in to goods, weapons, and waste, and then dumping uh, them out on the earth. And then this, we have, it's been a good 20 years that we have known that we're taking the resources out of the earth faster than they can be renewed. And maybe we didn't get it in our minds, but we got it in our psyches. We got it in our sense of things. And uh, that we are at the other end. uh, uh, And it's a pretty short little passage because of the built-in obsolescence. And so we dump, and we are dumping things into the earth faster than they can be absorbed. And that's becoming clear to us. That both the source and the sink, uh, we've gone far beyond already and so uh, but we continue to treat the earth as a supply house or and a sewer and as long as we do hold that thought in our mind we can do all the activism and all the organizing and all the and it won't make any difference we have to change our view of the larger body of which we are a part. First of all, to see it as our larger body. And that this is not a supply house in a sewer. Thank you very much. This is the sacred living earth. Mother, father, lover. This is our larger body. And every society and every tradition worth its salt has always steered itself by prayers and thanksgiving and tending and stories that breed that in us. So you're alive now at a wonderful time when you are going to be participating in our cultures, getting back to that absolutely life-saving apprehension of uh, what we are. So guess what? We've come to the part in the spiral, which we call seeing with new eyes, where we enjoy training and experiencing uh, the ways how we can. And it it takes some deconditioning. It's not enough for you to go, any of us, to go to a lecture, whether it's Deepak Chopra or Fritjof Capra or <laughs> Bugs Bunny, I mean, whoever, and for them to say, or Brian, it's not enough to say, oh, this is a living earth. So 
you have to practice it. You have to know it. And so that's and that actually is not onerous. It's a joy, a continual joy. We're coming home. So we're going to um, be going outside for a little deconditioning work. Uh, first, I've got a couple of poems. I'm giving you poems because the song we had for here is waiting for somebody I'm dying to meet to come and sing with <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> but we're cool. We're cool with it. We're totally relaxed. <laughs> Oh, I live my life in widening circles. Oh, I remember the day when it was the 1950s. I was standing on a snowy day in a bookstore. I just walked in near the university, saw this little cloth-bound book, Das Stundenbuch. The Book of Hours, Rainer Maria Rilke, and I opened it and saw the second poem. So I'll just say, you want to hear it in German, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich über die Dingen ziehen. Vielleicht werde ich letzte nicht vollbringen, aber versuchen werde ich ihn. Ich kreise um Gott, um den uralten Turm und ich kreise Jahrtausende lang. Und ich weiß noch nicht, bin ich ein Falke? Ein Sturm? You know what that is. Oder ein großer Gesang? I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I've been circling around God. I've been circling around the great mystery, the primordial tower, for thousands of years. And I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Well, that just took the top right off my head as I sit there. And all of a sudden, I saw that I was not a spiritual failure. That uh, the many connections I'd felt, the many voices that I'd heard, the, very, the many teachings I'd received, the many times I'd flown with the verse, all of that, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, it was really important for this little Protestant girl. Actually, I wasn't a Protestant girl anymore. But <clears throat> so um, it is our opportunity now in this hyper-individualized society, this hyper-individualism, that serves late capitalism very well, that we consider ourselves to be separate and that and that's all we can be sure about is this is me inside 
this bag of skin. And I better take care of number one. I've got to see that she's got enough that she needs. I've got to push away what threatens. Maybe I better improve her. I better make her look pretty, etc., etc. And it is this concern with defending or improving or mm, whatever the separate self that is really driving a strong driving engine in uh, the capitalist economy. Isn't that so? It breeds dissatisfaction because you're never enough. And the thing is that you can never satisfy that self. Because, as the Buddha pointed out, you can't satisfy something that doesn't really exist. (laughs) So uh, we come then in this part of the spiral to the second um, weapon or tool of the Shambhala warrior, which was that insight into the radical interdependence of all things. This was the core teaching of Gautama the Buddha. And they say it was the core teaching of all the Buddhas because when people, you know, as centuries passed and people found that the Buddhist teachings and practices were so wonderful and so useful and so (coughs) helpful that uh, they must have been part of the fabric of reality even before Gautama Siddhartha. And so there were... They imagined that there were other Buddhas that appeared at other times. Why not? <clears throat> and this was something, this was the key teaching of all of them. That we are not separate. That we are made of relationships. that we change from moment to moment because of that. That we grow strong through our regard and connections with others and with the web of life. Learning to see the world as exquisitely precious, like one's only child, like one's dearest partner and lover, like one's mother, whatever, like one's larger self. Mm. And every, every spiritual tradition Uh, has wrestled with this question, what do you do with this first person singular? What do you do with this I? Always talking, always wanting, always insisting. Oh, you know, what do you do? You know, you can mortify it. You can punish it. You can work to improve it. Oh, you can sacrifice it. So in all the different spiritual 
currents and streams and rivers of spirituality. There were these different ways of imagining how you could tame or get on top of or kill the this sense of the separate ego, this self-interest and this pride. But what's distinctive, what just blew me away about the Buddha's teaching is he didn't say mortify it, <laughs> sacrifice it, improve it, make it noble, make it gorgeous. He didn't. He just said see through it. It's just a convention. It doesn't really exist as a self-existent permanent being. So, cool it. (laughs) See through it and then to see what you're really, really a part of. And that you don't have to knock yourself out or make applications or submit your curriculum vitae to, I want to belong to earth. Let's see, how. what do I deserve to do that? Mm. Well, let's see. I was a Girl Scout, you know, or whatever. But that belonging comes with you. It is most deeply what you are. Well, that saves us a lot of worry. <laughs> and the... Um, uh, let me read you a, a teaching by an Australian Aboriginal because, the, as uh, Jennifer said, the uh, Native peoples are so uh, wise in uh, Indigenous peoples wisdom on our relationship to our world. And uh, I'll read you some lines uh, by Big Bill Nagy. He was uh, recently died. Uh, he was a, uh Aboriginal from uh, the Kakadu area, northern uh, Australia. And you may think I'm, it's written in his speech. I'm not making it up. Well, I'll tell you about this story, about story where you feel laying down. Tree, grass, star. Because star and tree working with you. We got blood pressure, but same thing. He working with you. Even nice windy blow, having a sleep because that that spirit he with you. Listen carefully to this because I you can hear me. I'm telling you, Earth just like mother or father or brother of you. That tree, same thing. Your body, my body, I suppose. I'm same as you. Anyone tree working while you sleeping and dream. This story, he can listen carefully. He can listen slow. If you in city, well, I suppose lots of houses, you can't hardly look this star. But maybe be one night you look. Have a look, star. Because that's the feeling. String, blood, 
through your body. That star, he working there, see? He working. I can see. Some of them small, you can hardly see. Always at night, if you lie down, look careful. E working, see? When you sleep, blood e pumping. I love it, tree, because he loved me too. E watching me, same as you. Tree e working with your body, my body. E working with us. While you sleep, e working. Daylight when you're walking around, he's working too. <laughs> that tree, grass, that all like our father. Dirt, earth. I sleep with this earth. Grass, just like your brother. In my blood, in my arm, this grass, this dirt for us, because we'll be dead, we'll be going this earth. This is the story now. This is the story now. This is the story now and always. We are not separate from our world. We are birthed from our world. As that young man at Rocky Flats said, we are utterly... Oh, that was the line I couldn't remember. For, he said, my brothers, we go forth to flourish or perish because we are utterly of this world and the world is utterly of us. So we're going to go out and uh, listen to our world. Uh, And we're going to go out in pairs, listen and feel and look, smell. So I'm going to instruct how we're going to do that. You're going to go out two by two. And... uh, Outside, you can put on your shoes or go barefoot, but we're going to be outside the whole time. Put on your shoes. Yeah. I don't want you to be worried about what you're going to, what rattlesnakes you're going to step on. And then, so I'm going to demonstrate. Mm. Oh, you stand up and I'll demonstrate with you. Okay, so um, so the shorter one will close their eyes first. <laughs> okay, and once you're outside, you will have a period of 10 minutes when you will be the guide and, or the guided one. The guided one keeps her eyes closed. And then this is done in silence. And then we walk. And so the guided one... (laughs) Thank you. When the dominant sense, then, you know, of course, what happens. 
the sound, the, the smell, the texture, the air on your face, everything else kicks in. And so you feel like you're a virgin to this world, that you're just going out and feeling it as if for the first time. And I will, as her guide, be sure that she's safe and guide her to a place where she can uh, maybe touch something. So I might put her hand there. Oh, that's a living object. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or the trunk of a tree, or the grass on the ground. And I might pick up something. There might be a dead leaf there, and I might have her hear it. Quinkle, quinkle. And I might have her smell it. Yeah. So I am, as a feast of the senses, where she's experiencing her inherence in the living body of earth. And then uh, every once in a while, maybe in five or six times in your span of ten minutes of guiding, you will place your guided one in front of something that you'd like them to see and then say, open your eyes and look in the mirror. And you see yourself. That's what all the poets say and the mystics say, that you can learn to live, move in the world as if it were yourself, your larger body, as it is indeed. You're always home. Yeah, so then we go on. Get the idea? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. So uh, once you get out there, uh, I'll ring the bell. I mean, you can start right away, obviously. But I'll ring the bell, so I won't ring the bell for you to start. You start when you're out there. But then, uh, after 10 minutes or so, I will uh, bong the gong. And what you do then is change roles. Any questions? We're good. good. All right, have a good time. I've arranged for beautiful weather for this. Thank you for noticing you weren't hearing. It'd be terrible if you just couldn't hear and it didn't bother you. You just sat there. <laughs> wow. So, so we come to the uh, last station on the uh, 
spiral of the work that reconnects. Having grounded and centered and opened ourselves in gratitude for life, for the chance to be alive in this amazing world, with the being breathed by life, with senses that can apprehend and get messages to be able to listen, to see, to hear, to communicate, to touch, to plot and plan, to be alive. Mm. Praise be. Hallelujah. Yeah. And then uh, with that fullness inside us, we know that we're not just some living abstraction, but we're in a flesh and blood world where we think things are being torn and bruised and unraveled, where great things are being invented and created, art and music and new perceptions and new thoughts and great unraveling at the same time. This is the world that we have chosen or against that where we're here. And so we are not going to be afraid of the suffering that comes along with that. And that's when we practice that too. And we saw that the suffering reminds us it's, it's proof positive each time. Each time we remember to think it Remember to see it that way, that we are connected. We are bodhisattvas. We are Shambhala warriors. Threads in a tapestry of life. And life calls to us, always surprising. A year ago, Jennifer didn't know that she'd fall in love with the Yukon River and the Yukon River would love her back and give her this song. New stuff arising all the time. So we see with new eyes, we see, we throw open the windows and doors of our being. And there's so much to feed that in this time. The ancient currents of indigenous teachings, the science of our time. Systems theory has been particularly powerful for me. And oh, the Buddha Dharma. Yeah. So now we come to we come to the uh, going forth and we allow some glee and appetite to arise in us. <laughs> Wait till we get out there. Oh, what we're going to do. 
So we got to remember certain things. Uh, some of the good remembering comes in a poem I love about it's a good going forth poem Rilke of course <laughs> from the book of hours and uh, the the poet imagines uh, that God is talking which is interesting because uh, Rilke was not much of a theist, you know. He was kind of turned off on Christianity. But he, the fact that he didn't like the theology to which he was, was subjected as a child, he didn't let that in any way close him off to the mystery and the beauty at the heart of life. So you must nourish that. Nourish uh, the surprise that you feel. Every morning as you wake up and look at the world as if you're looking into your lover's face. Okay, here's the poem. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Don't hold back. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. (laughs) Give me your hand. I guess we want to hear that again. <laughs> you sent out beyond your recall. I mean, it's too late now. You're already on stage. You can't go back. You're here, here, here. You are of this world utterly. Too late to check out. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. So remember that. (coughs) 
Just keep going. You don't need to approve of everything that's happening. Just don't stop. This was sent to me yesterday. It's a newspaper from a a farmer's market co-op in Isla Vista, Santa Barbara. An interviewer once suggested to Cesar Chavez that he might be a fanatic. I am, he responded. Those are the only ones who get anything done. I often recall this exchange, says the writer, who appears to be a teacher at UC Santa Barbara. I often recall this exchange when I hear talk of walking the middle road or the middle way for the sake of our suffering planet. It's as if the bold and tenacious approach is by nature too radical misguidedly fanatic. Now it seems to me, he goes on to say, that we preach the middle way to let ourselves off the hook. We don't care to do the work of disenthralling ourselves from assumptions, of examining the worthiness of our jobs, of going with a lot less, of changing our day-to-day habits, of cheerfully tolerating a little discomfort. No, we don't want to do that. So we glibly invoke the middle path, good and proud of our own reasonableness. And we continue to live more or less like we always have and sleep at light, relatively untroubled. Meanwhile, the world of nature literally dissolves, dissolving as they say, off stage, out of sight, almost as a rumor. But whoever told us that the changes that are needed are supposed to be middling? If, this sounds like that, if that sounds like an echo of the Buddha's middle way, it should be remembered that the Buddha's middle is modernity's extreme. <laughs> After all, here was a man, and God bless him for it, who exhorted followers to cease travel during rainy season to avoid stepping on surfacing worms. (coughs) And on he goes. As many reading these words already know, And hearing these words, he probably went amazed to know that I am reading it to such a distinguished collection of people. (laughs) Changing for the sake of our world is often difficult. It is anathema to the wallet and to the status quo. But as the many who are struggling to make these changes will surely attest There is satisfaction in such 
sea changing, and pleasure too, the satisfaction of entering through the narrow gate, the pleasure that can abound in the single gourd life. Angels began shining, Rumi sings, when they achieved discipline. Hey, get a load of that. I understand the word angel and discipline. You rarely hear it in the same sentence. But let's put it in the same sentence. You know, each one of us, we could use some discipline. That's how open systems self-organize, you know, through constraints. That's the truth. I could spend an hour lecturing you on that, and I'm not going to. Rumi saying, angels began shining when they achieved discipline. Life was hard, a Navajo elder once said, but we lived it gloriously. Sacrifice, Gandhi teaches, is making sacred. Okay, that's... That the aim of that is to summon up the blood and make you ready for extreme actions and to uh, be ready for exert, um, be ready to take your desires for uh, the self healing of our world seriously. To be ready to take your dreams for a just sustainable society. We can do it. Why do we want to settle for anything less? <coughs> do we dare to take our dreams and wishes seriously? Hard to do without... Hard to do alone without linking arms with others, some others in your neighborhood, in your town, in your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.